Fab, good morning, everyone. Uh, while the blue buckets are still doing their rounds, uh, you could be finding a Bible if you brought one with you. And if that's the case, uh, turning or scrolling to uh, Genesis chapter 38. This is our, our third message in a, in a relatively new series looking at the life of Joseph and his brothers. We've seen so far that uh, it's a fairly dysfunctional family that God chose uh, to use and to bless the world through. And we uh, completed chapter 37 uh, last week on the bombshell of Joseph being sold to the Midianites and taken to Egypt. And we're gonna, I'm going to read the whole of chapter 38. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You can look on the screen uh, above the stage there. I'll read the whole chapter. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hera, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah was now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, uh, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goats by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? 
there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on the wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. Have you ever had that moment when you're, uh, you're watching your favorite television program and, and somebody literally gets in the way? You're sat down, popcorn, drink, remote control, only to turn up the volume. Um, tuned into your favorite show, but someone is not paying attention and they, they move over. And, and, and you want them to get out of the way and you're starting to move now to, so that you can still see the screen. There's a sense when we get to Genesis chapter 38 that really what we want to find out about is Joseph. What happened to Joseph? He's the, he's the victim of the story. Um, he's just been sold into slavery. We're told right at the end of chapter 37, uh, you know, the, Midian, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. There's the cliffhanger ending. The brothers were thinking of killing him. They relent from that idea. Rather than kill their brother Joseph, they sell him into slavery instead. And now we know, at the end of chapter 37, that he's in Egypt and he's been sold as a slave in Potiphar's house. What's going to happen next? And so what happens is we just want to turn to chapter 39. If we didn't know the story at all, we'd be thinking, what happens to Joseph? But maybe you can also identify with that other moment when watching the television. When what you're watching is something you think is going to be fine and appropriate. Maybe you even recommend it to someone else. Maybe you've got, like, family coming over to stay. Or just mum or dad's just sat down next to you. And, and then the moment comes when you're watching this program, when you realize it's... It's not so appropriate after all. It might be classified even as a little bit, a little bit rude. Uh, we had that experience once where some very good uh, friends of ours recommended a particular program. This was before the days of, of Netflix, iPlayer, and just being able to access a box set straight away, starting from episode one. We had this program recommended to us, and we, started, we sat down to watch it, but it, it started some weeks before, this might have been episode three or episode five. And we watched, and it was, it was shocking. And we decided to turn the television off. And our friends rang up during the program 
to apologize and say, I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, it's not been like that before. And maybe we might think this about Genesis chapter 38 as well. It's tempting just to go over, isn't it? It's tempting just to go to chapter 39. But even though it's more than a little bit peculiar, this chapter is vital if we're going to understand God's work in this family. It's vital if we're going to understand what God is doing, not just with Joseph, but with all the brothers. It feels like a bit of an unwelcome, slightly rude interruption. And we don't really want to find out about Judah. He's the villain. He's the one who suggested that Joseph should be sold into slavery, done away with. It was him who, who, suggested, uh, who suggested doing that. And he's with his brothers then when they go I mean, imagine the scene. The brothers, the 11 brothers now, go back to their father Jacob. Having sold their brother Joseph into slavery, they've come up with a plan. They've taken his ornate, colorful robe off of his shoulders, ripped it up a bit, and dipped it in a, goat, in a goat's blood. And they've gone back to dad. And they said, we found this. Examine it and see whether it is your son's robe. They can't even say his name. Is it, see, is it your son's robe? They're just ruthlessly tricking their father. And you think, what, what was Judah thinking would happen next? The family life would suddenly just be great. Joseph would soon be forgotten. That Jacob would just say, oh well, you win some and you lose some. Let's look on the bright side. On with life. I'll pick a new favorite. Judah, you'll do. I mean, what was he thinking would happen? How would that have solved the problem? He must have felt justified. He must have felt in the right. Maybe he had a pang of conscience as he looked down into the pit at his brother who was pleading for his life. Shall we kill him or shall we sell him? I don't know. Maybe there was some pang of conscience right there. It does seem a bit harsh, but it's fair. He needs to learn a lesson. He's been really arrogant. He keeps going on about his dreams. He must have felt that he, in some ways what he was doing was justified. But Joseph wasn't the problem. It's just that Joseph's dreams revealed the problems going on. And so we saw last time in chapter 37 the, the anger, the hatred, and the jealousy that are bubbling up in all the brothers. I'd like to point out, I think from this, this chapter... God dealing with Judah and specifically dealing with his self-righteousness. The question we can consider as we go through is how does God, before he gets to rescue Joseph as it were, how does God rescue Judah? Judah needs rescuing from a pit of his own self-righteousness. What, what are the signs of his self-righteousness? righteousness first before we look at God's solution well here are a few that I might just uh, pick out a few a few hallmarks of self-righteousness because if if, if uh, self-righteousness is something that's growing up in our hearts here are the sorts of thoughts here are the sorts of ideas here are the sorts of ways in which we might think that shape how we live whatever the problem is I might think to myself, if self-righteousness is growing up in my own heart, whatever the problem is, everything is someone else's fault. 
or perhaps everything is everyone else's fault. This, the problem is everyone else needs to get over themselves. What a wonderful phrase. How bizarre to consider. How, how do you get over yourself? But that's how we can think. The problem is other people, they need to get over themselves. Um, Joseph, he was the problem, Judah might think. Joseph and his arrogance. The, the problem with Joseph is he was arrogant. He's a young upstart. He needs to get over himself. Maybe there was another, another problem. Problem is Jacob and how he's responding to his grief. Actually, you go back a while and he was, that the problem was he was making Joseph the favorite. Now, what's the problem? Oh, he just won't get over his grief. So you see, at the beginning of chapter 38, at that time, Judah left his brothers, and presumably his father as well, and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. He's realized that having received the news, or having drawn the conclusion that Joseph is dead, Jacob will not be comforted at all. He says, no, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Judah, oh, can't he just get over it? Now the whole family dynamic is swamped with even more grief. So what does Judah do? Oh, I'm out of here. Whatever design, whatever intention, whatever plan Judah had, it's backfiring big time. It's not going to create a happy family to go and sell your brother. And now dad's the problem. Oh, he can't get over it. Maybe he, maybe he might think something similar about his brothers. I don't know. As, as chapter uh, 38 unfolds, he might think his sons were the problem. It's my kids. Goodness me, they're so selfish. Who knows what Ur did that prompted the Lord's judgment. We know a little bit about what, what Onan did, but might just discreetly draw a veil over the details just for now. But we can see in Onan, it's just selfish. He wants to be publicly seen as doing the right thing by taking Tamar as his wife. But privately, he's got no intention of helping her conceive the family heir. That's the rights that she has. As bizarre as the whole story might sound to us. So he's selfish. Maybe Judah thinks, oh, for goodness sake, it's my children. They're the problem. Or maybe he doesn't think that because selfishness is his own problem. He probably can't help them address their blind spots when he's not addressing his own. So maybe it's not his son's fault. Maybe they're the victims as well. Maybe they've been misunderstood, he might think. Maybe it's God's fault. How dare God take my sons away? Maybe he's blaming God. And maybe then he is blaming Tamar. You notice what he does after the second son has died. Just, you go back. Go back to your father's house. Just stay there. I'll, I'll keep you, you know, don't ring me, I'll ring you. Just, a, just be, she's being fobbed off. She's been sent back. Seemingly no, part, no longer part of this family. She's an inconvenience to him because she has this rightful claim. But he doesn't want to lose his third son. And he'll probably turn out to be selfish too. So we can see with Judah, everything is other people's fault. And this is what happens when self-righteousness grows up. We can blame our parents. We, and maybe they have done things that aren't great. We can blame our siblings. And maybe we'd have a point. 
Maybe we can blame our children, dare I say, sometimes. Or our in-laws. It's always someone else's fault. Maybe outside of the family. It might be, well, it's always it's the teachers. They just don't understand. They don't get us. They're always at us. The problem is the teachers, or the problem is the boss, or the problem is management, or the problem is government. Or the problem is the church. This other group should have done something different. They need to learn. When they learn, things will go better. I've kind of got things sorted. If, if they wanted to ask me, I would know what to do. I could solve the problem, but it's their fault. Sometimes it can be more subtle than that. It can be, well, it's not me. It's not my fault, but it's my upbringing. It's not, it's not me. It's my personality. That's just how I am. It's not me. It's, it's my temper. When, when the pressure comes, you don't know what the pressure is I'm experiencing at the moment. It's not me, you understand. It's this other thing. This is other, other label. I can point the finger somewhere, somewhere else. That is what's growing up in Judah's heart. This self-righteousness that says everything is someone else's uh, fault. We, we can then see very easily the lesson that other people need to learn. But we can't say what God might be teaching us. You remember we we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 a few weeks back, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The problem is, we think we see clearly. We think we understand. That's Judah's issue. Now he will, and we'll see how he comes to see more more clearly. These are just the the early signs of self-righteousness growing up in him. Uh, Another symptom of the same thing is kind of thinking, I set the standard. People below me are unrighteous. People above me are super spiritual. Uh, The people below me, they're too cold. They're, They're just disinterested in the things of God. They're too worldly. They're too immature. They lack zeal. They need to be more like me says the self-righteous bod. But the second group, they're too hot. They're, they're overzealous. They need to get out more. Uh, they need to be a little bit more like me. The solution, we might think, if we're getting into self-righteousness, the solution will always be that others are more like me. And so I manage to keep myself like Goldilocks porridge, just right. in a position that can't be challenged. You see what uh, another parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, which is what we're considering today, and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
He's justifying himself. If someone came along and said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Pharisee, I fast three times a week and uh, I give a bit more. You say, well, well, there's no need. You're just being super spiritual. That's rubbish. What you need to be is more like me. But the tax collector stood up at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Judah is the one who's tempted to, to look down on others, thinking that he himself uh, sets the standard. However, again, when that thinking comes in, uh, double standards uh, creep in. And uh, I, I had a challenging, quiet time not all that long ago when um, I, I felt that I understood things pretty well and I was a bit churned up. I'd kind of worked out really what the, uh, some others needed to do and how if the situation could change out there, then everything would be right. And I had some time with, with the Lord and I was just working my way through Romans a few verses at a time. Um, and just that morning, I, I arrived at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. With all of these thoughts and emotions churning away, this is what I read that morning. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for, what, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you pass judgment, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you sow contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Sometimes when we read the word of God, it just holds out a mirror and we see something. Ah, oh, the problem isn't out there. It's not everyone else's fault. God's trying to teach me something. God's trying to show me my own heart and get that sorted and right before him. Like the plank out of the eye type moment. Double standards can creep in where we, uh, we expect too much of us. We expect a lot of others, but we don't expect it of ourselves. We see this again in Genesis chapter uh, 38. Judah is ready to have Tamar executed in verse 24. But he was involved in exactly the same thing. And he excuses himself, well, I've lost my wife. So, you know, maybe there's a bit of understanding. Like, he would excuse himself, but be ready to condemn her without kind of much more than a few words said in accusation. See how double standards can creep in where, where self-righteousness sets the tone in our heart. So what's God's, what's God's solution to self-righteousness? What does God do to help Judah and to change his heart that he might be ready as part of the family of God to be used by, for his purposes in the future? I might need to qualify this a little bit, but I'd suggest what God does is allow him to have a taste of his own medicine. Have you ever had a taste of your own medicine? I, the memory that came to mind uh, for me in, in thinking about this 
was when I was part of a youth group in the church that I grew up in, I can't remember if I was 10 or 8 or 11, but kind of around, around that age. And uh, in a group of about 12 or so, each one of us was asked to consider what, what name we would give to, to the group that we were a part of. We'd all had the opportunity to share our ideas. We all uh, came up with one. Uh, and, and then we were all encouraged to, uh, to share that name with the rest of the group. And, and there'd be some kind of informal vote. That whichever was thought to be um, the most suitable name would become our name. Uh, now, obviously, obviously, we all had a vested interest. We, we wanted it, I wanted it to be mine, the one that I'd picked. Uh, and, and, and my two friends with me, uh, they thought the same. And, and, and when it came to kind of casting the vote on every other name and on every other idea, we, we as a three, we clubbed together and we were really harsh. Everything was a bad name, obviously apart from ours. Uh, I, I, I harshly judged all those options. Uh, and then it came round for, for my idea to be judged. Now, I hadn't really thought this through. I just assumed that maybe uh, my friends would, would vote for mine and, and my name would win. And what I discovered at that point is that they turned on me. And they, they gave my idea a pretty low mark. And so straight away, the judgment that I dished out to others, I tasted myself. I was devastated. But actually learned something, I hope, in the process. Have, we, have you ever had a taste of your own, uh, your own medicine? This is what we were just looking at again in... In Matthew chapter 7, don't, uh, don't underestimate the words of Jesus. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That can be like when we're, if we are quick to jump to a conclusion and misunderstand what someone else is trying to say, after a while, we might start to experience that other people are jumping to a conclusion about us and misunderstanding something that we say. If I am prone to writing other people off, there will come a point when that's what I experience too. Others write me off prematurely. If I've been dishing out that kind of, uh, that kind of judgment, what happens to Judah? Think back. What did Judah and his brothers do in chapter 37? They got a goat and they killed the goat. They used that goat to trick their father. And what did they say to their father? They came with the robe and said, see, or examine it. Have a look. Work out, is this your son's robe? That's what he did. What's happening now in Genesis 38? Bizarrely, a goat is involved as well. Judah says to the woman he doesn't realize is Tamar, what would you like me to give you? She asks for a goat. He sends a goat. But they don't find Tamar. They don't find the woman he'd spent time with. 
beside Anaim. And so the goat comes back. You kind of think, what was going on then for the next three months? As the goat is still in and around the household, occasionally bleating. Don't you look at me like that. It's like the goat saying, I know what you tried to do. You're not getting away with it. I know he's not literally talking, but you kind of wonder what was going through Judah's mind. Shush. And then what does Tamar say? Straight after Judah's judgment, put her to death by burning. And she sends out. She reveals what she's kept all along. Uh, the cord and the seal and the staff. Have a look. See. Examine these. Do you recognize them? I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. He's on the receiving end of what he's dished out. And then comes the, the punchline. He's been beaten at his own game and he gives up the pretense. He comes clean. If you're reading through Genesis 38 and you're like, what's the point? What's going on here? This is the point. Judah realizes someone else is more righteous than him. I'm not so great after all. Actually, I, I need to put my hand up to that. It's not my father's fault, actually. It's not my brother's fault. It's, it's, it's not Tamar. Whatever you think of Tamar, it's not Tamar's fault. That was me. He's not saying, oh, that's my personality. I was under pressure. It, it was this. I was bereaved. There was something else going on. What you really need to know is, he wasn't coming out with loads of excuses. She's more righteous than I. And that moment would petrify any of us. Because we all like to have the idea that we, we might have a good reputation. We want people to think well of us. Whatever happens, whatever I have done in the past, whatever's going on in life, hopefully I'll come out of this above average. That mostly I'm in a position where I can look down on people. I'm, oh, thank you God that I'm not like you. Thank you God that I've not made those mistakes. Thank you God I'm doing a bit better than that. And every now and again we might come across a super spiritual person who's above us, but on the whole, we're okay. And maybe we're prone to writing other people off because we fear being written off ourselves. If people really knew, if people really saw the whole picture, if people really saw what was in my heart, if people really knew what I'd said or done behind closed doors, I don't want to tame our nose, but no one else got to know. It's fine. We got away with it. Phew. devastated wouldn't we but this is the vital moment that has to come it's what we've heard so many times but we we're not righteous in and of ourselves we could never provide our own way we could never make ourselves clean before God we could never pay our own debt we could never establish our own our own righteousness that would give us confidence well you might not be able to stand before God on your own righteousness, but I think I'll be all right, actually. I've, I've done a lot of good things. 
know, sometimes I really have to lay down the law. Sometimes I have to show people their problems. Sometimes I have to help other people learn a lesson. But I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm fine. I'm okay. The problem's out there. That's what you want to sort. That's what you want to deal with. Don't, you don't need to come looking at me. Judah was humbled. He's no longer trying to protect his own reputation or blame other people. But he might think, or we might think, well, that's it then, isn't it? The truth's out. God knows what Judah's like. Everyone knows what Judah's like now. It's a scandal. And he's written off as though he'd play no further part in the purposes of God. And perhaps that's what we fear. That's why we fear confessing sin. That's why we fear being open and vulnerable sometimes. We don't want people to find out what's really going on. Because we want to be self-righteous. We want to be above average. Judah is brought down a peg or two. But rather than just be exposed, written off, and disqualified, this is a really powerful moment in his story. This mess of chapter 38 will actually turn out to bear good fruit. God's solution for self-righteousness is not just making sure we get our comeuppance at all. What God is doing is bringing about a humility that combined with faith means that we're, uh, we're thoroughly a part of the family of God and with a part to play in his purposes. The good fruit is this. Judah is humbled, but he's not discarded. He's not, he's not thrown away. He goes on to play a key role. In chapter 38, he's like the leader of judgment, harshly condemning his brother. I've got an idea. And they all go along with Judah. That's what his leadership looks like in chapter 37. You look on and we'll revisit it on other occasions. You see what his leadership became. You see how God used him. Once humbled, how could God use Judah? How would God redeem Judah? It's breathtaking. It's remarkable what God would do through Judah. Someone who was prepared in a painful moment. Someone who was prepared to be humbled. Someone who's prepared to come clean. God uses him in a remarkable way. He's like the poacher turned gamekeeper. An amazing example of how someone's life can be turned around. And then there's Tamar as well. We're told here in chapter 38 that she bears two children, twins, Perez and Zerah. When I think the whole sorry mess of this chapter, you think it's just whispers of scandal forever surrounding this weird family. How's God going to bring something good out of Genesis chapter 38? Do you want to know the answer? Turn to Matthew chapter 1, which is the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the, the good news that's in the Lord Jesus. He says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're told Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, and so on. And we get all the way through, actually through that genealogy with other whispers of scandal as well, all the way through to a virgin called Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph. And she conceived outside of wedlock. There would be whispers about her as well, but she'd give birth to the Son of God, who has come, the Savior of the world. Remember all those promises for this family? I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, you're going to bring blessing to the whole world. And here's a story you just want to brush under the carpet. Move over, Judah. But see, no, actually this is redeemed. So don't go thinking that the result today is, well, if I have to confess sin, if I have to acknowledge before God that I'm not very righteous, uh, if that becomes apparent to other people, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be asked to lead anything. Uh, I'll just sit on the back row. Um, I'll, I'll expect to play no kind of instrumental part in the kingdom of God. No, no one gets written off like that. If God can use Judah and Tamar to bring about his purposes on planet earth by his grace, he can use you. You're not being written off. When that time comes to realize, oh, ouch. I realize now the problem isn't with everybody else. There's an issue with me. It's not being written off. Some of us can be, thrown, can be prone to thinking, oh, I'm, I'm the problem. That's what I was always told. There was, there's no hope for me. It's other people who are going to be used by God. I just, nah. My backstory is way too messy. My upbringing is way too complicated. My sin is just is properly black. All you other nice folk can be used by God. But it's not happening for me. Is how we can be tempted to think. You read this chapter, you read the gospel, you hear everything that's been contributed today as we've been worshipping, and you realise we're all in that boat. If it was just down to us, we would be exiled. We would be separated forever. There would be no hope. I love that picture, that image of the, of the doorways into something with, with rainbows indoors. Indoor rainbows, that's a lovely idea. Where, where are you going to find hope? You find hope in a community of people who realized, I'm not righteous but who realize there's a saviour I can call on. Or it says in Romans as well, but now, but now a righteousness is made known from God. The law and the prophets pointed towards it. We could never produce it, but Jesus came down to provide it. And say, I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to count you righteous. You're included. You're welcomed. You're drawn in. Aren't you glad? I hope that we spent a bit of time in Genesis 38 this morning. It'd be easy just to brush past it, wouldn't it? But here is a profound story of God's redemption, and that's the God who's at work today. So sometimes there can be a moment with God of just coming clean, of saying, God, I realize 
There's some stuff that I need to turn away from. There's some things I need to learn. There's things that you're wanting to teach me, and I don't want to block my ears to that and just talk about the problems in the world or the problems elsewhere or the sin that others are producing. I need to come clean. I need to acknowledge it. You're trying to get my attention, God, and I've been pushing you away. Respond. Repent. And expect to see God unfold his purposes for you, not just send you away. In fact, I'm just going to ask you to stand right now. No one's going to ask you what it is regarding if you're making that response today. Just saying, actually, I need to, I need to respond before God. We're going to all stand in a moment and we're going to sing. I'm not asking you any questions. No one else is going to ask you questions. But you know, before God, I just need to humble myself today. You've been trying to get my attention, Lord, and I've been brushing you off. Maybe so much of what you've heard today is, is brand new to you. And maybe today just marks the beginning of a journey, getting to know Jesus, getting to know the good news in his name. And perhaps by standing today, you're just committing yourself to think, yeah, I'm going to find out more. Right now, you can already begin speaking to the Lord. I'm going to pray in a moment. But just in your own heart or quietly from your own lips, can you just be saying, God, I see now what you're doing. Forgive me, Lord. I want to turn away, Lord, from my attitude. Forgive me for judging my brothers. Forgive me, Lord God, for being quick to point the finger but not receive your work when you probe in my heart, Lord. Right now, Lord, we choose not to run away from you, not to busy ourselves with other things, but to say, here we are. Lord, you know the full story. You know everything we've been thinking, everything we've been saying. We thank you, Lord God, for your wonderful kindness. You've not brought this to our attention, Lord God, to do away with us. But this is out of the riches of your kindness, tolerance, and patience. In your kindness, O oh God, you're leading us towards repentance. And by leading us towards repentance, you're actually leading us into life the life that you intend us to have. Father, forgive us when out of fear, we just try and attain things ourselves. We don't trust you, Lord. And what we're saying today, Lord God, is forgive me for my sin. And I trust you. I trust you, Lord God, that on that final day, when I'm stood before the throne of our Savior in heaven, the Savior will say to me, you've trusted, in, you've trusted in me, you've trusted in Jesus. And I count that as you being righteous in my sight. Welcome. Lord, we trust you for that day. And we trust you for the future. We trust you for life, Lord. We don't know how things will pan out. But we're giving up control, manipulation, jealousy, hatred, discord, anger, we're giving all of that up, Lord, for a simple life of trusting in you and following you. 
In Jesus' name.